Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. And she's buying a stairway to heaven because that stairway leads to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, and if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. Now, we fully realize here at Stick to Wrestling headquarters that there are some good podcasts out there, but I maintain that there's only one wicked good podcast, and it's Stick to Wrestling. But you don't have to listen to me. Let's ask Roddy Piper. Roddy, if someone told you that there's another wicked good podcast out there, what would you say to them? I want you to understand something. I understand what you're going through, and I have I feel sorry for you in a way because after all, after all, <laughs> I don't know what it's like myself, but you are a loser. <laughs> I mean, that's Roddy for you. That's a little bit harsh, maybe, but I feel like it's from the heart. Listen to Stick to Wrestling, the only wicked good wrestling podcast out there. I want to bring on a guest. It's been like a year since I've had this guy on, and he did a really good job last time. I'm looking forward to speaking with him again. Tyler Judd. Tyler, welcome back to Stick to Wrestling. Hey, thanks for having me back. No problem. Now, I got to I got I to throw this in. I am recording this Sunday night, September the 13th. So last Sunday night when you guys are listening to this, Tyler, you have been a Carolina Panthers fan since the team started in 95. Am I right? Pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. So it, I know it was weird seeing Tom Brady in a Tampa Bay Buccaneers mm-hmm. jersey. And it must have been weird for you seeing Cam Newton in a New England Patriots jersey. Yeah, it was it was bittersweet. I because I wasn't a big uh, proponent of getting get shipping him out of here, but yeah, I'm glad to see he had it. Sounds like he had a pretty successful day. He was back to doing what he's really good at, which is running the football. And you know, seems like it worked out for the the Patriots for sure, especially after watching Brady throw it around a little bit today. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, that New Orleans defense was brutal. But I mean, we're 60 minutes into it. He looked really good. I'm a little bit concerned that, you know, if they run him like that, 16 games mm-hmm. a year plus playoffs, you know, is he going to hold up? But it was it was a good, really good 60 minutes of football at him. Yeah, I mean, it's the thing with Cam, though. I mean, if you try to make him a pocket passer, which they tried to do over the years here, it's like, you know, taking the wheels off a car and expecting it to win the race. That That is his game. And if he can't do that, then he's probably not going to hang around the league very long. So I, one thing, and I, I'll stop talking football in a second, but one quick thing I wanted to observe, I have obviously I've seen him play dozens of times, but today was the first time I ever said, probably since he was at Auburn, he's huge. He yeah. is a giant out there. Yeah, a good friend of mine one Saturday morning was down in Charlotte at a, I don't know, bagel shop or something. And he was standing in line in front of him and they were they were kind of sneaking pictures of the guy. He's absolutely massive. His legs are like tree trunks. Oh, I, I believe it. All right. We're going to talk about two different things today. One primary thing, one kind of small thing that I noticed 30 years ago, 1990 was the autumn of the Black Scorpion. And I think I'll explain my reasons why, but I think the angle has been somewhat maligned in a way has become that over the years. Now, I'll be glad to explain myself, but I do want to ask my guest, Tyler, what did you think of that whole thing? 
Well, I mean, I think as the angle started unfolding, it was it was like, oh, this is going to be good. It's going to have a great payoff. And then, of course, at the very at the very end, it kind of fell flat. But, you know, I think in hindsight, looking at it, they obviously booked themselves into a little bit of a corner with it and didn't prepare ahead of time to to get it to, to work out. But until the end, I mean, it kind of it was pretty intriguing, I think. Yeah, my take on it is this. I mean, I used to have people call me and talk wrestling, uh, you know, 30 years ago. And my phone, I was getting a lot of phone calls when the angle started. Like, okay, who is the Black Scorpion? Like, you know, I get calls like this because I'm usually going to know the answer. And my answer was, I don't know when the angle first started this is. I don't know, and I don't think they know either. And yeah, mm-hmm. you have people who are like, what do you mean they don't know? He's got to be someone. Like, no, they, they don't have to assign him anyone yet. And it was good at first. You had, it, it generated interest. That Clash of the Champions did a really good rating where they advertised Sting versus Black Scorpion. And then Sting takes off the mask. I think it was Wild Bill Irwin and the real Black Scorpion shows up. They were onto something. And then it just became... More and more obvious, I think even to the average person watching, they had no idea who the Black Scorpion was. The thing went off the cliff in a hurry, and Mm -hmm. when Ric Flair was unmasked as Black Scorpion at Starcade, that was absolutely awful. You could tell it was Flair. I think the average person watching knew that it, quote, wasn't Flair all along. They were just throwing him out there. Yeah, I mean, I don't don't think that that was something that you're going to put your world champion and or at least someone who's been your world champion pretty much for the last 10 years in a in an angle like that but i i don't know i always heard it was what it's supposed to be al perez or something maybe or they thought it was going to be go that way or or, they, or maybe they never knew or they i there was talk that it was going to be al perez even though i don't think al perez would have made any sense i mean i like al he just wasn't a, a big enough star to put in that role. I mean, they could have made it Paul Orndorff, even though Orndorff was on the wrong side of his, his career. Like he was past his prime, but he was still Paul Orndorff. Or they could have said something like, you know, Ric Flair did all, you know, bring in some guy who you want to push, pair him with Flair and say, okay, uh, Rick set this all up. And this is the black scorpion, but Ric Flair was the guy who was behind it the whole time. I don't know. Yeah. Well, whatever it was, they went behind the wrong curtain, I guess, for that one and uh, came up short. Yeah, to, to say the least. And, uh, you know, Ole Anderson was the booker, and somehow he takes no responsibility for any of this. It was a good idea at first, and they just did not know how to follow up on it. Yeah, I mean, that, I guess that was towards Ole was well past his prime as a booker at that point and was definitely yeah. on the downside for sure. The business was passing him by. Yeah, definitely. The second thing we're going to talk about on Stick to Wrestling, like I said, this is the main part. We are going to discuss the premiere episode of TNT, Tuesday Night Titans, the WWF's groundbreaking program. Their initial episode was May 29th, 1984. I watched it for the very first time yesterday. I thought I had seen it before and I hadn't. I was actually in New Jersey at the Meadowlands Arena watching Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat. Nice. (laughs) I think you picked the right uh, way to go with that. (laughs) I think I did, too. And I also think I picked something that was 
totally the polar opposite of what the WWF was in the middle of doing. The show got a lot of hype and something that is going to be on Tuesday, every Tuesday night at eight o'clock, a two, uh, a two hour program. I mean, that is such a gift that the WWF got from, from USA network. Absolutely. And the fans too. I mean, up until that point, at least for me, wrestling was a Saturday morning, you know, or Saturday night at midnight kind of thing. And then to have this on prime time like that, I mean, that was a game changer. Yeah, we were at this point getting so much wrestling on TV. And for me, it was Nirvana. I mean, by this point, we were getting three hours of wrestling on TBS. We were getting the two hours of WWF. We were getting the, you know, I was not yet getting the NWA syndicated show. Uh, we were getting All-American Wrestling, and now we're getting this show on USA. So that's six or seven hours a week, which was a heck of an upgrade from one hour a week, which I used to get. Yeah, absolutely. Same same here. And, you know, I went into this, too. I haven't seen it since it, it aired, and I don't even remember if I saw it in its entirety when it aired. But I went into it thinking I was going to completely, it was going to be just awful. And in ways it was, but in ways it was absolutely glorious. And I enjoyed it. I mean, there were parts of it that I enjoyed. And when I say that, I'm talking about like the show that went from 84 to 86 and all the silliness, mm -hmm. like the uh, the mating game with the Heart Foundation was absolutely hilarious. Butcher Vershawn's wedding was absolutely hilarious. But at the same time, I'm not sure if I wanted that injected in my pro wrestling. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But you could tell I was watching it. And every time Vince would kick to this skid or, or whatever, I mean, he, he, he just started glowing. Like he was just so proud of this. I mean, you could tell he had this vision and that's the way he was going to take the business, which he obviously did. But he was certainly very pleased with the, the program and the idea around it and everything. And so it was kind of cool knowing how the book ends to sort of go back and reread it again, as he say. Yeah. And at this point, I was just starting to figure out that Vince McMahon was more than just the TV announcer. And if you just watch WWF wrestling, you had no idea that Vince was the guy. and. By him appearing on this show in the role that he was in, it's obvious it was almost like he had this I'm the boss vibe going on. Absolutely, because until that point, he was just kind of like, you know, a, a nerdy type of How, uh, Howard Cosell sportscaster that everybody sort of picked on when they, you know, the heels always picked at McMahon. And he didn't he didn't carry that same aura and presence that he did in the later years. But you could tell that character or that side of him coming out in, in, in this program for sure yeah um i as a matter of fact i think right around this time i read in one of the kites magazines that vince was indeed the guy promoting the wwf and in 85 the after magazines also let it be known that that vince was the promoter yeah yeah i, I wasn't sure when that was but i knew I started watching the WWF in 82 and it wasn't clear, but I don't think it was too far after that, that I, I, I kind of knew where he stood as far as his packing order with the WWF. Yeah, it was, it was a major surprise for me because, you know, I'd been watching for eight years and I had no idea that this guy, well, I mean, he actually wasn't the promoter for, for eight years. He just started in 82, but just, you know, learning that he was now in charge of this was a big deal. Absolutely. Kayfabe. Uh, 
<laughs> All right. Now, they open up with a match. Now, mind you, I had never seen this show before, but I had seen several of the matches before. The match that they started off with was Paul Orndorff against Brian Blair in St. Louis. A couple of months earlier, this had been recorded. No coincidence, this was a really good match. Yeah, it was very good. It was a very, I don't want to call it an NWA-style match, but there was a lot of ground wrestling. You know, you had two guys who had obviously had come through sort of Florida and through the NWA to Georgia ranks, and and it was a very technical, not I don't want to call it technical, but a, a very uh, mat-based type match that was soon to go away in the WWF. No, it, well, I thought it was a very technical match. They did a lot on the mat. Um, it was a really hot crowd, which you mm-hmm. know, definitely helps the match out. Brian Blair, he is getting a lot of heat from a lot of different sources nowadays because he is the president, I believe, of Cauliflower Alley Club. And mm-hmm. a lot of people don't agree with the way he's running it. But let's just stick to wrestling. I thought he was a really good, really underrated talent. Yeah, I mean, he he absolutely was. I mean, had a great look. He was very crisp. He, he I, I just, I don't know that he had the, the charisma, even in the killer, you know, they dress him up like a bumblebee. I think that was the one thing kind of that was missing with him. He just didn't really stand out. I mean, I, I sat, I watched that match and thinking, and this is, you know, he's wearing black trunks in the match. It is very bland. And to me, I'm looking at him. It's like, I, you know, I'm, I feel like I was looking at Mike Graham or any number of guys that just you could have put any of them there. I think that was the, the difference. I mean, the work was was very good. I thought he was very good. I just didn't think anything really stood out about him personally. No, I agree. And as a matter of fact, after this run, he went back to Florida and won the Florida Heavyweight Championship, which was actually, I thought, a good role for him, kind of a big fish in a small pond promotion like Florida was almost perfect for Brian Blair. Like you said, he's a lot like Mike Graham. Yeah, absolutely. And he was never going to be world champion in the WWF where you had guys like Hogan and, you know, the larger than life. Blair wasn't larger than life. He was a really good wrestler. He just didn't stand out as, as being anything, you know, overly special. Like a lot of the guys at that time. I mean, yeah, to get there, you had to be, I mean, he was picking all the best guys from everywhere in the country to come in and, you know, it took more than being just good. I guess you, you had to stand out and he no. kind of just blended in. No, I, I totally agree with you that, you know, he just didn't have that spark, that charisma. I know people who knew Brian Blair and you hear this kind of story all the time. Brad Armstrong mm-hmm. was like this, like he's the, the funniest guy outside the ring when the microphone's not in front of him. And when the microphone's in front of him, he loses something. Yeah, it also didn't help. He's pretty small. Uh, it was pretty small compared to, to Orndorff. Orndorff looked like he had probably 30 pounds on him. Yeah, Orndorff was, I mean, at this point, Orndorff was so blown up. But I'm glad it all worked out for Brian Blair because there's a lot of guys like him who just wound up not having careers in the business. And, and they found something for him when they brought him in, uh, teamed him with Jim Brunzel and created the Killer Bees. Hey, I mean, he got a, what, another probably... 30 years out, I mean, he's still probably signing at conventions, with, you know, with the Bumblebee outfit on to this day. So, Yeah, you would think, I mean, it was one of those things, Brunzel and Blair, I have heard over the years that they were not close outside the ring. It was one of those tag teams. They were good, but mm-hmm. you would think Jim Brunzel, who is a really good wrestler, and Brian Blair would be putting on clinics every night, and they just kind of didn't. Right. 
Yeah, I, again, I mean, I I just don't think anything about them stood out. I, I mean, you look at the guy that was drawing all the money. He wasn't putting on a clinic every night as far as wrestling was going, but everybody was there to see Hogan. So, yeah. you know. I mean, it, it, I thought it was a good role for him. It worked out Absolutely. really well. Now, <laughs> the show is just starting. Lord Alfred Hayes is now Vince McMahon's sidekick on this show. He had just arrived in the WWF a few months earlier, like I want to say January, February, 84. He was doing the wraparound segments on mm-hmm. all American wrestling and on WWF championship wrestling. And now he's in a bigger role. And at first to me, it looked like Lord Alfred was playing a heel. He was, had the tuxedo on and he was mm-hmm. making fun of Southern accents. What was your reaction to that, Tyler? Uh, well, yeah, he said that about David Schultz talks. Uh, he said, I believe he said he talks. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty comical. Um, I remember when he came in as, you know, watching and he just kind of seemed out of, it seemed a weird addition to the program. And I don't, I don't recall it ever being any type of explanation that he had been a wrestler or what he was doing there, why, why they brought him in. Maybe they did, but I don't remember. I don't recall that. And he always kind of stood out. It was a little bit odd. But watching back over this, he was really good. Yeah, I I thought looking back, I mean, at first, I I don't want to say I hated all of it, but I hated the concept of the show and I didn't like Lord Alfred very much. And now I've grown to really like the guy. Yeah, same way. I mean, at first, like I said, I didn't get the whole Lord Alfred Hayes, what he was doing there how he fit in. There was no explanation that he had had a career as a wrestler. If it did, he barely touched on that. And, uh, but again, and watching back over that, I mean, he handled it like a pro. He was obviously very seasoned at that point. McMahon kind of took his shots at him a little bit during the show and Hayes just, you know, rolled with it really well. I thought, I thought it was, I thought he did. I thought he was pretty, pretty good (laughs) to be honest. Yeah. I mean, Lord Alfred was, it was, it was obvious from the start that Vince was, was finally letting his alpha male personality run mm-hmm. wild on television. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, kind of not to jump ahead here, but also, you know, when they were kicking out to the arena, the show, these matches, Gene Okerlund was doing, you know, some of the commentary and early mean Gene was really, I thought he was really good as well. I thought he was okay. I didn't think he called a match very well, and his reaction was always, oh, 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 you know. I, <laughs> I thought he was good as a personality. I, I, I always thought he was good at doing interviews, and as time has gone on, we've heard more and more that Gene, in his role as an interviewer, you know, he'd be doing interviews all day long. So he is the guy that you think, well, he's getting tired. We need to keep him cheered up. He kept everyone in the room cheered up. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I've never heard anybody say anything bad about Gene Okerlund, so he must have been a, a pretty beloved guy behind the scenes for sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, so now we get to the Dr. D. David Schultz portion of the show. And let me just preface this by saying, if you watch this show, if you have WWE Network, it's easily accessible. A lot of this does not fly in uh, the year 2020. <laughs> you could never have some of this stuff on television. Yeah, they first they did an interview with Dr. D. David Schultz, which was a little bit eye-raising. And then he had a match, and then they had a segment that has to be seen to be believed. If you 
see this on WWE Network and it's available. I mean, it's shocking for the year 2020. I was a little bit taken aback when I saw it in 1984. And yeah, they played this segment again. Uh, they repeated it. But let's start from the beginning. Dr. D, he is in the WWF. He's only 29 years old. He would be done by the time he was 30 because he tried to pick a fight with Mr. T before WrestleMania. He does a really good interview with Gene Okerlund, but he's making domestic violence references. Tyler, what was your reaction to this interview? Uh, I wrote down the word homophobic for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you've seen one David Schultz interview, you've seen them all, baby. <laughs> Because he, you know, he kind of always threw that in. It was, he was always, you know, he always put over how tough he was. But it was clear that Vince was going to push him because they gave him like three straight segments on this show. So Vince wanted to, to get behind him. I think he had maybe uh, some pretty big plans even for Schultz, which I think Schultz indicated that uh, he thought he was going to get an even bigger push until he got fired, essentially. I, I think he would have been around at least until they did their first real house cleaning in 1987. But I mean, if Schultz didn't give them a reason to fire him, they, he wouldn't have gotten fired. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was clear by the show that they were getting behind him pretty big. I mean, they gave him three straight segments. So they gave him an interview. They gave him the vignette. They gave him they, they showed the match. Uh, but, yeah, the interview is just I, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting there with my palm on my forehead thinking there's no way this sees the light of day uh, i can't even believe it, to be honest with you i'm, I'm kind of surprised they even have it on the network as, as, as pc as vince is with some of this stuff you know what that's a good point i'm glad they let us decide for ourselves what we get to yeah. watch and, you know we get to self-censor but after this interview we have a match dr d david schultz against billy travis Yes, it's that Billy Travis that uh, about three years later, about two years later, started getting pushed in Memphis. And Schultz was really good in this match. He had a really good finisher with that twisting elbow off the second rope. Yeah, and Travis was halfway across the ring, too, man. He had to he had to kind of fly. He, he had to jump a little bit to get there. I didn't realize at the time how big he is, but Schultz is massive. And he was in tremendous shape in this match. I mean, he looks like he's very low body fat. He was in great shape. Thought he was really good. He came across as someone that was very menacing. Uh, looked legitimately like a guy you might see in the parking lot somewhere in a Pier 6 brawl, as they say. Uh, he, he played that part well, and he was very believable for sure. He was very believable, which brings us to a segment where the camera crew visits Dr. D. David Schultz's house. And I remember seeing this, like I said, they, they aired it again, like either late 84, early 85. I was taken aback by it. I mean, he, he comes across as a legit psycho. He comes across literally as, you know, this guy is about to snap any second and there's going to be victims of violence. Yeah, absolutely. At times, I mean, I, again, I wrote down in my notes, uh, at times that vignette made me a little uncomfortable, to be honest, because I'm like, oh, gosh. But yeah, uh, I could definitely see a, an abusive jerk like, like that. I was curious. I don't know if you know who, was, who played the part of his wife. I do recall him seeing an interview with him. He, he didn't know, you know the kids, and that wasn't his wife, and that wasn't his kids. But I wonder who those kids were, and I wonder who the lady was. But 
Yeah, it was it was uncomfortable time to watch. It was pretty intense, actually, in a, in a few brief moments during that whole segment. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know who the played the wife and the kids. I do know that Vince, there was a, a modeling agency that he frequently used in Baltimore for the TNT show. So I'm guessing it, it was one of those. The kids, I have no idea, child actors, I'm thinking. Or maybe yeah, guess- someone else's kids that you know, could just play along with this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I got a kick out of it, though, because they, you know, it's this log cabin out in the country and they're like, this is Nashville, Tennessee. I don't know if you've ever been to Nashville. <laughs> Nashville's, uh, you know, is a big city, kind of like Charlotte, uh, where I live. And uh, so they kind of made it look like he was living out there where the Waltons live or something and uh, in this log <laughs> cabin. But coming from Nashville, I thought it was pretty funny. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I mean, he did a good job playing the the psychotic abuser. He physically threatened his wife in the in the segment. He intimidated mm. both of his kids. He was intimidating, physically intimidating his wife. It was pretty scary. And and I'm here to tell you that, like I said, by 2020 standards, you could never do something like this. This was on the edge in '84, '85. Yeah, no way it goes today. No, no way at all. No and way. Then, don't forget he. He intimidated the uh, camera crew and the interviewer uh, at the end, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, he, he, he has a complete meltdown. He you know, has his wife make dinner for everybody. They're sitting down eating dinner. He's yelling at everyone by the time it's over. And it's like you know a five-minute segment. He's kicked everyone away from the table, and he's having a complete meltdown. And he throws the camera crew out of his house. Yeah, I mean, well, what would you do if your wife served pizza and fried chicken to a camera crew that came to interview you? <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> and they keep saying that, you know, I told you they were coming. And she's like, no, David. I, yes, I did. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I, I've mentioned this on the show before. In, I want to say June 85, I went to an ICW show in Billerica, Massachusetts. Schultz worked the show. It was a TV taping. I think he did three matches. And by the time... He was done. I mean, he had the crowd so intimidated. There wasn't heat. Everyone was like, oh, my God, I'm not I'm not going to be the one who upsets this guy and has him jump the rail and beat the crap out of me. I mean, he really had everyone scared. Yeah, I, I could see that. I mean, you know, if you're sitting out there on, on the rail and uh, that guy comes by, you might want to turn your head and look the other way and not push it with him because he seems like the kind of guy that might lose it. And uh, obviously that kind of came to fruition as John. Stossel can attest to, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, uh, John Stossel. What was that guy? Stossel, yeah. yeah. Well, John Stossel, he tried to pick a fight with Mr. T right after that. Then was the Barricka thing. And then he, uh, years later, he was on the Morton Downey Jr. show, second mention of that show in two consecutive sticked wrestlings, where he tried to pick a fight with that guy who claimed that he was going to be made world champion if he had sex with uh, the Georgia promoter. What's Jim Barnett? which is you know, a ridiculous story. But, you know, he tried to pick a fight with him. He dumped water on his head. I'm trying to think of this guy's name. No, but I mean, he, you know, he said in the interview, it was, and, and he, it was believable. You know, I, I'm, the, I'm the guy that took your lunch money in school, and I, I'm sure he did that more than once in his day. Oh, yeah, and Lou to the rescue, Jim Wilson. Thank you, Lou. I don't know why I blacked that out. But anyway, we're back to kind of a Tonight Show set. We go straight from there. Tito Santana comes out wearing a suit and he does not a typical wrestling interview where he talks about, you know, his opponents and what he's going to do next. 
he's talking about, you know, just his career in general, which is kind of not common. Yeah, I thought it was good. It, 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 this is what I kind of liked about it. I mean, it was sort of campy, but it was neat. At that point, you, you didn't see wrestlers out of the element of either being interviewed. Uh, occasionally, you would get a vignette where they might go out to the farm with Black Jack Mulligan or, or you know, something like that. But to see him on like a talk show set almost legitimized it a little bit. So seeing him, you know, in the cowboy boots and the jeans and the dress, you know, the sport coat and everything was pretty cool. Yeah, it was definitely different and cool seeing Tito in that environment, you know, unusual where he's not just talking about his next match. Then they show footage or not footage, but still photos of Tito taking a young fan out to lunch, you know, with his uncle and his dad. I guess the kid won a contest where he got to eat lunch with his favorite wrestler. and His favorite wrestler was Tito Santana. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I thought that was pretty neat. He said the kid kept telling his friends at school that that he was going to get to go to lunch with Tito Santana and nobody believed him. And uh, then they picked him up at the school in the limo and uh, he got to go. The funny thing about it was Tito was wearing the exact same uh, outfit that he had on, on the show. So I don't know if that was the same day or not, but I'm assuming no. But uh, I, th- I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, it was nice of Tito to take that young man to lunch. I'm sure he remembers that day to today. And uh, I don't know if they did that before or since, but it was a nice gesture. Yeah, it was pretty cool. I sitting here thinking about the math on that. That kid's in his mid-40s, maybe 50 years old now. Hey, no, it's amazing to think about that. He was a little kid in this segment. So now we continue focusing on Tito Santana. He is wrestling Adrian Adonis. It was a match from St. Louis. I looked it up. They actually really did go to a 30-minute draw. What they, they showed about five minutes on TV. It was really good. Man, I would have loved to see those two go out there for half an hour. Yeah, it, it was really good. The thing that stood out to me a lot about that match, I couldn't stop looking, is Adonis was really starting to balloon up here, and he was already starting to get morbidly obese at this point. But he was bouncing around the ring for Tito crazy, even towards the end of the match after 30 minutes. He was bouncing all over the place. What I heard about Adrian Adonis a long time ago was he was just a natural bad body guy. And when he was in the WWF in like 82, he had some weight problems. He didn't have a good body, but he worked hard for what he had. And when he when he gave up, basically, when he stopped working hard, my God, he started to balloon up. Yeah, and it's definitely a body type thing. He had those little skinny legs, almost like Dick Murdoch. And it's kind of ironic they were paired together. But then he, you know, he, he was so big, the girth up through his chest and down through his belly. I mean, it was it was bad. Yeah, and it was really sad because in '88 he had started to lose weight. He started to get serious again. He was, I don't know, if promise is the right word, but he was told he was going to get a job in, in the NWA as the old leather jacket Adrian Adonis, and then he had the van accident, which he died in. Right. And that's the thing that's one of the things in looking back on these old matches. I mean, you just mentioned that Schultz was 29 here when we were watching him. And Adonis must have been in his 20s, too. I mean, it seems so weird looking back that those guys were still so young at this point. They didn't seem that young, even in retrospect. No, Schultz, definitely. I would not have guessed he was 29 because he'd been around the business for so long. You know, he had some pretty serious gig marks at that point in time. You could really tell in that vignette his his forehead was pretty 
pretty bad and, and mutilated. And I think that kind of played a little bit into that as well. But yeah, they didn't look like guys in their 20s. No, and I just looked it up. Adrian Adonis had not yet turned 30. So he was a great performer. And I wish we could have found out how this all would have ended for him. Now, we're in St. Louis, and it's Adrian Adonis. And I've mentioned this on, on the show before. Adrian, you know, he, he does his gimmick that he's from New York. And if you ever hear him talk, you know there's no way he's from New York. But St. Louis, for some reason, gets a really loud New York sucks chant going on. Yeah, he had the um, he had the New York on his boots. Kind of, it, it was sort of like the Yankee insignia uh, with the NY. I, I don't know. I guess they were reaching for something on the guy to get him, you know, fired up, do their part. He was from Buffalo, right? I think he was originally from Buffalo, but he grew up in like uh, Northern California, no Southern California. Oh wow, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so. We get the mailbag segment, or they're now doing a mailbag segment, and the first question they, they pull out, and I don't know where they're getting these letters, by the way, it's the, it's the first episode. Of course, Vince McMahon puts himself over mm-hmm. by having the question asked, Vince, were you ever a wrestler? What was your reaction to that, Tyler? <laughs> well, his answer was obviously a little bit phony. He said, I'm not big enough and mean enough to be a wrestler. Which is ironic that, you know, it's still 40 years after that, he's still trying to be, or until recently, he's still trying to go out there and, and put on a show as a wrestler. And I'd always heard Vince always wanted to be a wrestler, but it's, you know, was never, I guess his dad didn't want him to go that side of the business. But yeah, that was definitely some a self pat on the back there, obviously a softball for Vince to feel good about himself. Oh, yeah. Oh, sir, you're so big and you know so much about wrestling, couldn't you, Dot? Dot dot. <laughs> yeah. During that same segment, you have Al Hayes insinuating he slept with Queen Elizabeth at some point along the line. I don't know if you thought that, but that was. I got a pretty good chuckle out of that. I definitely got a chuckle out of that one as well. Good old Lord Al. So now we have another wrestling segment, a a match I want to say from 1972 or 1973. It was Arnold Skoland, who is best known as Bruno Sammartino and Bob Backlund's manager, against Joe Turco. Tyler, have you ever seen or heard of Joe Turco before? I had not heard of Joe Turco um, until this, and I did look him up. So it sounds like that was towards the very end of his career when he, when he was here, or getting towards the twilight side of his career. But I, I was not familiar with him at all. I was familiar with Skoland as a wrestler, not Joe Turco. Turco was around, I want to say, until like 1978. He was in and out of the WWF. I never saw him win a match. However, he had the nickname. Every time he was announced, it was from some small town in Sicily, and they would call him the Continental Nobleman Joe Turco. Like He got a heck of a gimmick for a guy who never won a match, or at least a lot of attention for one. Right. He had a good look. I mean, he was pretty menacing looking with the long hair and everything. One of the things about that segment, I mean, you can see Vince's potty humor shining through. You know, I think it's uh, Skolan has Turco on the mat in a headlock or something and somebody in the front row smoking and blows the smoke up in the air. And, and Vince, of course, makes the comment that Turco didn't blow that out of his <laughs> posterior. Yeah. I think he caught it. 
So, I mean, just classic Vince with the with the yeah, bathroom yeah. humor. It, it was too much. Now, I am convinced, you know, Joe Turco physically, he looked good in that match, but Arnold Skoland had put on some weight, and Lord Alfred Hayes was like, oh, no, this isn't like today where the wrestlers are all in good shape and they work out. Back then, they were, quote, beer swillers and wench chasers. Yeah. <laughs> Vince took a double take on that. He said, uh, you know, he asked me, say wench chaser? <laughs> yeah. Like good there stuff. were no beer swillers and, and wench chasers in the wrestling business in 1984. Yeah, I think they phased out around the late 70s, the wench chasers did. <laughs> All right. Now we get to, I think, Vince's vision of what TNT is going to be. Both Lord Al and Vince act like they smell something horrible as we go to commercial. And they come back and they're still acting like that. And they're like, what is this? When maybe 20 feet away, you could see the Samoans cooking. And they're cooking raw fish. And it was obvious that, you know, well, hey, the Samoans are over there cooking. Maybe that's that's what smells. And that was kind of dumb. But this was something like I had never seen in wrestling before. I mean, I had seen, like, outside the ring stuff, like they once did a vignette on Bruno Sammartino, they once did a vignette on Bob Backlund, his home life, they did the vignette on Buddy Rose, being on the beach, being a playboy with girls. This was a goofy vignette of the Samoans where they're they're just showing them preparing food, and it's obviously a clown show. Yeah, and it, 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 it's that's so true because you know they had been presented as savages and monsters, and they kept that up a little bit. They were speaking out what I presume would be Samoan, or I mean, I don't even know if they actually speak Samoan in real life, but I would assume that was some version of the Samoan, some type of Samoan dialect. And it just, yeah, it really to me, it really took the edge off of those guys. And I don't know, I'm sure that's the the way he was going to do, but it almost. Uh, uh, you know, bushwhacked them, I'll call it. You know, he had this big, mean, vicious tag team, and then he kind of almost made them silly with his vignette. Uh-uh. You know, in five yeah, minutes, I mean, you took the edge off of them. I, I think that, that's what Vince was going for with everyone in every direction. He wanted he wanted it to be a children's program, and he didn't want it to be serious. He wanted it to be silly. But you mentioned uh, what language the Samoans speak. In 1983, they had an episode of Championship Wrestling, and Vince McMahon, you know, the Samoans are you know, communicating however they communicate in wrestling. And Vince says to Pat Patterson, Pat, you've been all around the world. You've been to Samoa. What barbaric, guttural language do they speak in Samoa? And I think Pat was half listening. He's like, oh, they speak English, Vince. So the unintentional <laughs> humor from 1983 there. Next week's show highlights of the Samoans losing the tag team titles in 1983 to Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson. Now, this is an old match by this point. The match is is six months old, which is old to be building around an angle around it, but Vince is creating dissent with the Samoans. He's asking them, how do you feel about Lou Albano costing you the tag team titles by mistakenly hitting Zika with a chair? What, What did you think about this, Tyler? Well, I remember that match very distinctly when it when it aired. Um, I can't remember what it was, 
but for whatever reason, I maybe had a little like baseball game or something that day. I just don't, I don't remember. I don't know if that timeline even lines up, but um, I don't think so. That was in what, March or something like that. But I mean, it was a classic match. I liked the end and the chair breaking over the head was great. It was kind of weird that, you know, an official would count a guy's shoulder down with a wooden chair wrapped around his neck and not even, you know, (laughs) what happened or anything like that. It just, you know, okay, let's count them down. But that place absolutely exploded when they won that thing. I mean, it, it, a huge pop for Johnson and and Atlas. And, you know, both of those guys were just in absolute tip-top physical shape at that point in time. Uh, I just – I remember watching it live time and thinking that was pretty awesome, and it still holds up. Yeah, and, you know, I've mentioned this before. Like, most of the WWF babyface tag teams had a Batman and a Robin. You had Ivan Putski, who was an established star – with Tito Santana, who at the time was a rising star. But he was a young guy. He wasn't established yet. You had Dino Bravo, who was a star, and Dominic DiNucci, who was an old guy. Now you've got two top guys holding the tag team titles. And I liked it, and it basically... This, to me, symbolized, especially looking back, uh, the WWF was finally getting rid of their tired old tag team system, where, you know, you would have babyface champions for six months, then Albano would bring in a, a couple of guys for six, seven months, and, and it would just rinse, wash, repeat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, and I, I don't, you know, I started watching in 82, so I didn't see a lot of the formula with the champion and the, you know, the monster heel coming in, getting the, you know, the, the going around the horn with the champ and that formula. But it seems like they were very formulaic with that sort of thing back then. And I guess that was sort of the tail end of that. Yeah, it, it was just so boring. I mean, you, you, I mean, Albano towards the end was bringing in a new tag team before the old tag team even lost the belt. It was it was absolutely awful. But at least it was going away by now. So the Samoans leave, and we get to the great part of this show. Lou Albano is being interviewed, and he shined like I never saw him shine before, or maybe I just haven't appreciated it. As time went on, he claims that the chair, hitting the Samoan with a chair, technically was a mistake, but he says the Samoans should have have overcome it and they should stop being crybabies about it. Yeah, that was pretty interesting because it wasn't too long after that that Albano went to full on, you know, baby face and, you know, all over MTV and the whole nine yards. But he was definitely selling hard as a heel here and taking credit for everything and none of the blame for anything. Uh, Classic heel reminds me of some other folks you see in the news these days. Yeah, it it was pretty interesting. Albano was, if anything, was very entertaining. Yeah, I didn't appreciate him as much at the time because he had always been there. I mean, I started watching in 76. Now I got my weekly dose of Lou Albano. But when I see it now, I, I enjoy it even more. I mean, he says he when he found the Samoans, they were savages in the trees. That was that was his exact words. <laughs> and he's the one that brought them the fame and glory. So like you said, he's taking all of the credit and none of the blame. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the cool things that I thought about this interview that you don't see, especially Vince doesn't you know, allow this now, was he goes back and he's, yeah, you know, I had the moon dogs and I, I managed so-and-so and he's calling guys back from the past, the executioners, et cetera. 
which I, I thought was pretty cool. I, I love it when they, they go back and, and talk about the history. And you know, it seems more realistic that way to me and more believable. Oh, yeah. They showed this montage of Lou Aldano and all of his tag team champions. They showed the Moondogs. They showed the Executioners. They showed Mr. Fuji and, and Mr. Saito. So mm-hmm. like you said, that makes it all more realistic and believable. Right. And then he started taking credit for uh, Cindy Lauper. Her career as well, uh, <laughs> you know, putting her on the map. Let's talk a little bit about that. I remember Christmas week, 1983, all of a sudden this song is on the radio and it was on like the pop stations and the rock stations. Girls just want to have fun by this person I had never heard of, Cindy Lauper. And okay. it was obvious that she was getting a big push in the music industry. From day one, Girls Just Want to Have Fun was a number one hit. I think Time After Time was next. I think that went to number one. And what was the the song that was after that? Do you remember Tyler? But she had like three giant hits by this point. Girls Just Was Shebop. Shebop. No, nah, I think Shebop was the fourth one. There was like a, I think there was a third one. I could be wrong. But she was established as a major star. And Lou Albano was in both all of her music videos and you know a small appearance but he was there i remember you know watching mtv and going whoa that's lou albano and now albano is claiming to manage cindy lopper and once again is taking credit for all of her success tyler do you remember this absolutely and i mean at that point cindy lopper was a uh, becoming a household name and as much as i loved wrestling uh growing up you know, unless you watched wrestling, you didn't know who Captain Lou Albano was. And he was claiming to be the big star, of course, which was really funny. Yeah, I remember a big, you know, seeing him in that video. It was like, wow, that's a that's a pretty big gig for a wrestler to get because you just didn't see that kind of thing. No, you never saw wrestlers doing anything mainstream. And, you know, the past 25 years they've been out there, but it used to be a real rarity. But anyway... I remember this night, now, Lou Albano was on Piper's Pit, and they show a clip of it, and Piper says, you know, Lou, you manage Cindy Lauper. Can you have her appear on Roddy Piper's Pit? And Albano's like, sure, Roddy, anything for you. And the two of them hug, and we're like, okay, Cindy Lauper's going to be on Piper's Pit. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I was at the, the Meadowlands show, as I mentioned earlier, and I actually was lucky enough to go out to dinner with Bill Apter and Craig Peters and, you know, my friend that I went to the show with. And, you know, we talked about that. And Bill Apter was like, that is absolutely ridiculous that, you know, they're trying to get people to think Cindy Lauper's going to be on Piper's Pit. She's a major star. She's on tour. And she's going to make this this trip to Hamburg or Pennsylvania or whatever to appear on this show. And lo and behold, about a month later, there she is. Absolutely. And that's when everything changed. <laughs> I mean, it was it was definitely getting Cindy Lauper was a huge coup for the WWF. And I mean, it definitely got a lot of eyeballs on that promotion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also legitimized it as uh, being a serious form of entertainment in my eyes as a eight or nine year old kid at the time. You know, if, if the guys from if the if people from MTV are showing up, then it's legit, right? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it it made it a, into big time entertainment. I mean, everyone I knew, whether they were a wrestling fan or not, 
watched the fabulous Moolah versus Wendy Richter match on MTV in July when Cindy Lauper was Wendy Richter's manager. Yeah, absolutely. And that's when Vince kind of shifted into high gear and was really starting to roll. It was clear that they weren't doing things the way they had been doing them previously. I had watched the, one of the first angles, and I told you this, John, one of the first angles I remember was the Ray Stevens-Jimmy Snuka angle, which was really violent and would not become something you would really see much of going forward. I guess the, the Piper Snuka angle was similar to that, but you really didn't see a lot of stuff like that going on. And after this point, I mean, it was way more entertainment than it had been simulated violence or sporting event. Yeah, I mean, the the Piper Snuka angle had violence, but one thing it did not have was blood, and I don't think that was a coincidence. I never thought about that. I thought Snuka did bleed, but he didn't. Hm. No. <laughs> it was completely blood-free. I mean, they did a, a wild angle the year before with Snuka and Morocco, and it was really bloody to the point where they censored it. But yeah, they were still using blood in the WWF. They just didn't use it for that angle. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't hard weigh him because supposedly he really he gave him a concussion with the coconut when he hit him. That's what I've always heard. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Piper says it was a non-gimmicked coconut, which I refuse to believe. If you've ever held a coconut in your hand, you're like, there's no way this is going to break over anyone's head without killing them. The head right. break, not the coconut. <laughs> yeah, you got to beat it with a hammer to get it to open up, right? <laughs> exactly. Now, I think they do something really smart for the last part of the show. They probably had about a half an hour left, but I think they realized that there were people watching that had either never seen the WWF before or maybe that had never even seen pro wrestling before. So they start to do a montage of their stars, starting with an absolutely hilarious segment. I'm pretty sure it's available on YouTube where Sergeant Slaughter, Roddy Piper, Fred Blassie, and Lou Albano, they showed clips of them appearing on the show called It's Your Turn, Lehigh Valley. And Albano and Blassie are abusing the audience to the point where the host says to Vince McMahon, is there any way you can control this? I need to have an audience next week. Yeah, I'm curious. Do you know if the guy that asked the question, was that Mel Phillips? <laughs> I think it might have been. It was not Mel Phillips. It was definitely not Mel Phillips. Okay. And the best part was, like, I, I know those were not plants. Those were real audience members. And I mean, Fred Blassie is, is you know, this lady is, you know, telling Fred Blassie like what a bad person he is, or what was she talking about? Yeah, I, I don't remember exactly what she said, but didn't he call her? A, basically, he told her she was a loser, and uh, you know they were basically insinuating. No, I now remember she was saying that you know, uh, she, and she was totally serious. She was totally being someone who believed in pro wrestling. She was saying, "Well, Iron Sheik makes all of his money in the United States, yet he says he hates the United States." And Fred Blassie says, "Go home and dye your hair. Your black roots are showing." And that, yeah. that's when the host flipped out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, they anyway, shut it down pretty quick. Yeah, it, it's it's called "It's Your Turn, Lehigh Valley." I think if you add the words WWF or wrestling to that, you will see it on YouTube. The whole thing is absolutely hysterical. But next, they show 1975 clips of a match with Andre the Giant, who 
is being presented as one of the WWF's top stars against three guys, Johnny Rods, Joe Nova, and Dynamite Jack Evans. I mean, Andre was a house in this match, and he was, you could tell if this was a shoot, like he'd have a chance against these three guys. Yeah, I mean, he was absolutely in fantastic shape as far as Andre goes at this time. He wasn't bloated like he got in the later years, moved well you know, just an intimidating guy. And then you add the four or five inches, uh, you know, puffed out hair on top. I mean, just what a sight to see Andre the Giant. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Butcher Joe Nova was not a great worker, but I mean, Jack Evans was excellent. Johnny Rods was excellent, especially when it came to taking bumps. So they had the right guys in there with them. Yeah. I mean, with Andre, I mean, he just did the visual of that guy, just dwarfing three guys. But, you know, to be able to move like that at that point in time was amazing. Yeah, he was something else in the day. I mean, I remember he came to Nashua and, you know, I got to get up close with Andre the Giant and that man took up a lot of room. Yeah, he he wasn't. It's not just about being tall. I mean, he was he was so wide and just just massive, huge hands, huge feet, just everything about him was just larger than life. Yeah, I, I'm I'm lucky I got to see him a bunch of times when he was a babyface, and then of course when he was a heel. Then we show clips of Hulk Hogan against the masked superstar, who was a a major wrestler who left the WWF and now was wrestling in Georgia. And no surprise, we get to see Hulk Hogan beating him up. Of course, but yeah, that was neat footage. I, the masked superstar run where he he had with Backlund with the uh, Eddie Gilbert neck breaker, you know, angle on the floor. Again, some of the old WWF angles that really stand out to me that you just don't didn't see much after this point in time. Loved Bill Eady, thought he was fantastic. And like you said, they had to put Hogan over, of course, on the TV show because they were obviously putting their wagon behind that horse. Yeah, I was lucky enough in 1983 to see a Bob Backlund versus Mass Superstar match in Boston where the superstar decked Arnold Skoland outside the ring. Backlund tried to make the escape, and then he did the twisting corkscrew neckbreaker on Backlund, and they both landed on Skoland, and the place went nuts when both Backlund and Arnold Skoland got stretchered out. Nice. I always loved this mass superstar. I thought he was he's a guy that doesn't get enough credit for being as good as he was. And then to have basically an entire second career under the demolition you know, persona is kind of amazing. A guy to have almost two careers, sort of like a Johnny Walker or, a, you know, a, a Dewey Robertson kind of thing, where the whole second half of their career is a completely different persona that goes on for several years. Bill Eady, just tremendously underrated talent, in my opinion. I mean, it could be argued that he had three careers because he was one of the Mongols before he mm-hmm. became the mass superstar. And I've right. always been really impressed that he was able to go straight from, you know, one of the Mongols didn't take any time away from the Carolinas and just reemerged as this new guy, and no one suspected that, oh, that's one of the Mongols. Yeah, that's kind of surprising, because size-wise, he stands out from a lot of guys. But I guess, you know, the thing that's so distinct about him, he was a great interview. He was very underrated. Some of the stuff from Georgia, some of the interviews with Gordon Soley and stuff, uh, he was fantastic in the mass superstar role. I didn't get to see him as a Mongol. That was before my time, but um, well, same here. Yeah, but big big Edie fan. Very unappreciated talent, I think. 
I agree with you. And one of the things I liked about him was he was a very cerebral heel. He did not come out and yell and scream, but he was a bad guy nonetheless, just a, a very calculating, sinister character. Right, and then you throw the mystery of the mask on top of that, just a, a really good character-type performer. No, I agree with you. Next, they show highlights of Jimmy Snooker versus Greg Valentine, two guys in the middle of a huge push. There was a time in my life, as a matter of fact, this was a time, 1984, where this was an absolute dream match for me. I saw these two as two of the absolute best wrestlers on the planet. Yeah, I mean, I, anybody that's been on our Facebook pages knows I'm a huge Greg Valentine fan. He's one of the first. He was in the first main event I ever saw live against Dick Slater in 1983. Been a huge fan of Valentine's ever since then. I thought Valentine was believable. I don't think he gets enough love personally. And then Snook on, you know, as an in-ring performer, I mean, is in the top upper echelon, especially during this period. Guys just didn't do things like Snooka did. And just to be in the, the, the kind of shape he was in, I mean, just tremendous. Oh, God, he was already, I think, past 40 at this point, and he was still looking really good physically. They did a a spot during this match where Greg Valentine, you know, they were outside the ring. Greg Valentine picked Snuka up in a suplex position, and instead he crotched him over the rail. And it was a little bit of a problem because the people who had this happen right in front of them were were all cracking up laughing. Yeah, I caught that too. That's a pretty serious bite. Back in those days, you didn't, you know, didn't go to the floor a lot. It wasn't, a, I guess you didn't really see that as much. But Snooka, one of the things that I think he was underrated, Snooka sold really well. I mean, you want to talk about Ricky Morton, Snooka. I mean, even the, the Piper's pit, I mean, Snooka acted like he was getting killed when he was selling. And, and you really thought he was in big trouble. But yeah, I would love to see that entire match. I don't think they only showed a few minutes of it. But fan of both of those guys at that time, I had a Snooka poster from a WWF, picked up at a WWF show at the Cap Center, hanging nice. on my bedroom wall. Yeah. <laughs> so next we have an Iron Sheik squash where he's wrestling two opponents and is absolutely mauling both of them. And he, he did, it was a funny finisher. He places the guys on top of one another and then puts the camel clutch on the guy on top. I cannot remember seeing that match, but I thought it was hysterical. Yeah, that the the camel clutch to me was a finisher that was always like, I mean, it, it looked like he was going to snap the guy's back in half. It was believable. And man, if anybody ever put that on you when you were wrestling around with your buddies, man, that hurt. Oh, and, yeah, uh, believe me. We yeah. used to do that all the time. And I had the advantage because I had the pictures from the magazines of holds that weren't used in the WWF. So, Tyler, what was your overall opinion of this show for May 29th, 1984? I went into it thinking it was I was going to, you know, just hate it. Or not hate it, but I just I thought I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was going to be a little bit of a chore to get through it. Campy, yes. Not necessarily what I want out of a wrestling program, but I thought it was kind of neat to see some of the the shtick with the in-studio, although I thought the Samoan segment was a little bit weird. But overall, I really enjoyed uh, watching, you know, the hour and a half went by pretty quickly. And uh, I thought it was, you know, if it, if it wasn't anything else, it was entertaining. I am with you. I went in thinking, you know, thinking very dimly of it that this was, the beginning of the end of the wrestling that I loved. And, and the show itself 
kind of was, but this episode was good. Um, it moved along quickly. They had a lot of good stuff, and I absolutely loved the Lou Albano segment. I mean, Albano was just mm-hmm. at his best here. Yeah, and then, you know, the other thing is that during that time, you weren't exactly getting Brian Blair versus Paul Orndorff on your show every week. I mean, you're getting Paul Orndorff versus Sal G or, uh, you know, Stal Belomo or something. You weren't getting main event type matches and this, you know, provided those, which was just you didn't see a lot of that during that, that time frame. No, I mean, a lot of the time championship wrestling and all star wrestling were six squash matches and that was it. And you're right. We didn't get to see Santana and Adonis. We didn't get to see Orndorff and Blair every single week. We didn't get to see old matches of Andre the Giant. So that part was really cool. Yeah, I thought it was neat. You know, used to love getting the old Coliseum videos and stuff when I was a kid because that was the only place you could see the main event type matches. So turning on the TV on a Tuesday night and seeing real arena matches that you, you know, you had only before that guy had to pay to see if they were in your area. Yeah, you just didn't get it on TV. So I thought it was overall it was, you know, pretty, pretty cool. Tyler, I want to thank you for another outstanding appearance. The last time you were on after the show, you said something that, that always stuck with me. That I remember, I'm like, yeah, this is 100% true. You were like, you know, you hear guys having a conversation or and you think you, you know all this and you're ready. And then you go out there and the bullets start flying. Like every week for an hour, I know exactly what you mean. And thank you for coming on, man. It was great having you. Yeah, man, it was a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me on again. And, uh, you know, hopefully at some point in the future, we'll get to do it again. Definitely for sure, man. I want to thank, once again, Tyler Judd for appearing on the show. I want to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, who does a great job sewing this all up and putting it together for you every week. I want to thank everyone for listening. We will see you next week. This Stick to Wrestling episode has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. So long from the Granite State. This concludes our podcast day. 